one TV show my wife and I enjoy is called The Great British Baking Show. Uh, contestants display their skills in signature bakes, face unknown technical challenges, and prepare a showstopper to impress the judges. One judge named Paul Hollywoods, known to be particularly demanding, and his reputation precedes him. But he's not all prickly and petty. Occasionally, he tastes some excellent work, smirks for a few seconds, and then doles out one of his famous handshakes. When that rare event takes place, everyone at the baking tent reacts with joy, and I'm sure the viewers at home do the same. Now, I'm not here to endorse the show, but I see the sweat and tears, the time and effort put in to become a star baker and celebrate the UK culture. And I can't help but ask, how much do we care about bringing a good offering to the judge of all the earth? The preparation, the practice, the pressure we put on ourselves in this show to create cake how much more should we devote to the creator of the universe? I think today's passage from Malachi will get us thinking about this very topic. We began the series on Malachi last week, looking at the introductory verse and the first of six oracles or disputations between the Lord and Israel. The back and forth between the two continues in the second oracle in today's passage. It's the longest of the six as it goes from chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9, spanning 18 verses. So I'm going to take two sermons to discuss this one oracle, nine verses at a time. So let's read now Malachi 1, 6 to 14. That's the rest of the chapter. Malachi 1. 6 to 14. If you're following in the Pew Bible, you'll find it in page 673. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? But by saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name is, shall be great among the nation, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say, 
The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Did I accept this from your hand? Says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Much of this passage is typical of Malachi's style. The mark of disputations in verses 6 and 7 God confronts his people's sin, but they say, in what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? The title of God, the Lord of hosts, occurs seven times here out of 24 times total in this book. There's also the mention of God's name six out of ten times. I also observed some structural markers that apportion the nine verses into three sections containing three verses each. First, notice the hinge or joint in verses uh, 8 and 9. You see the question about the governor, would he accept you favorably? Asked nearly verbatim about God, will he accept you favorably? The verses 6 to 8 form one unit, and verse 9 begins a new section. Secondly, notice that at the end of verse 11 and verse 14, God expresses his zeal for his own reputation in the grand world stage. My name shall be great among the nations. My name is to be feared among the nations. So those declarations mark the end of two sections, 9 to 11 and 12 to 14. Now, even with such markers and divisions, the message is one and simple. God deserves better from his people, but they've offered leftovers to the Lord. But I still think there are some subtle differences in emphases between the three sections. As I meditated on those differences, I thought about three ways to reform our worship, both individually and corporately. First, recognize God's high status. Recognize God's high status. That's verses 6 to 8. Secondly, stop minimizing God's great fame. Stop minimizing God's great fame. That's verses 9 to 11. Thirdly, Honor God's majestic rule. Honor God's majestic rule. That's verses 12 to 14. So first, recognize God's high status. What stands out to me in the first section are the three titles of authority. The Israelites would immediately recognize them. In verse 6, there's the father the head of the family. The son must honor him. Then you have the master, the boss at work. The servant must honor him. And then skipping down to verse 8, you have the governor, the Persian civil authority. Israelites 
must honor him. While Israel recognizes these three positions, they fail to recognize God. He too is father, master, and governor. We read when Israel was a child, God loved them, and out of Egypt, he called his son. Those who call God our father in heaven also have him as the master in heaven. And far above every government is the Lord who reigns over the nations and sits on his holy throne. In addition, there are repeated reminders that the Lord is the Lord of hosts. We saw this title in the middle of verse 4. We discussed how Lord in all capital letters points to Yahweh, the self-existent one. It is he who made a covenant with Israel, and he keeps that covenant with Israel. But add of hosts, and what do we get? These days we use that word in context of hospitality. But an older definition of host is army. And we're not talking about just any army. We're talking about countless celestial warriors that do God's bidding. I'm reminded of that story of Elisha and his assistant in 2 Kings 6. They were cornered by their enemies, the Syrian army in the city of Dothan. Elisha assured the young man, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then the prophet prayed, and the Lord opened the eyes of that servant to see the horses and chariots of fire. If we have the Lord on our side, we have his army on our side too. They're sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. And it's all good as long as the Lord of hosts stood against the enemies of God's people. But what's frightening is that now in verse 6, the same Lord of hosts will overthrow Edom, the same one who is indignant against them, magnified beyond the borders of Israel, now turns against his own people in wrath. Imagine the shock as he specifically addresses the priests of all people. Those ministers regularly stood at the temple altar, also called the table of the Lord in today's passage. And let's just say they had bad table manners. They despised the name of God. And what's worse, they got defensive about their ways. But God patiently spells out exactly what they did wrong. Their violations take us back to the law of Moses regarding sacrifices. I'll just read one passage from Leviticus 22, 17 to 25. If you want to follow along, go ahead. If not, just listen. Leviticus 22 Verses 17 to 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, 
It must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. You can also find something similar in Deuteronomy 15, 19 to 21. And you don't need to know the rituals in detail to get the main point. God desires our best. He deserves our best. And whether we're under the law or under grace, we should not sin against the Lord by giving leftovers to him. So remember what we read earlier in Acts 5, 1 to 11. There should be fear of God and worship, whether Israelites bring lambs to the temple altar or Christians bring money to the apostles' feet. God wants our best, whether it's animal bodies for killing sacrifices or our own bodies for living sacrifices. Every saint in every age must recognize God's high status. He deserves better than any father, any master, or any governor. Now for some quick applications. As we gather on Sunday mornings, I think of two main offerings we bring before God. The voice from our lungs and money from our pockets. First, congregational singing is one of the most basic ways we give to God. And I say it's most appropriate to sing hymns, modern and classic, and that's because most of them promote a grand view of God. They help us recognize his high status and motivate us to give him the highest praise. Secondly, we also recognize the Lord's high status as we give to support fellow believers and good causes. The Bible points us to the right motivation in Hebrews 13, 16, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And just as recognizing God's lofty stature motivates us to sing, we're motivated to give as well. It's easier to give when you recognize that God's a far better master than mammon. It's easier to give yourself first to the Lord and then to others once you see our Father in heaven gives us our daily bread. It's easier to be content and avoid the love of money when we recognize God as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So I hope that as you recognize God, his high status, you'll be motivated to sing, give for his glory. Let's go on to the next three verses and consider another angle, how we should stop minimizing God's great fame. 
Verses 9 to 11 repeat much of the same ideas we saw in verses 6 to 8. It was ridiculous for the priests to think that they'd find favor and grace from the Lord while treating him as less than God and even less than a father, a master, and a governor. Now, some have trouble with passages like this one as they try to reconcile God's grace with God's lordship. But I see no contradiction in the Bible between his mercy and judgment, goodness and severity. Those who are justified freely by grace will sanctify the Lord God in their hearts. We must hold together the two truths of God's grace and his greatness. Unfortunately, we often lean too far one way or another. Some of us overemphasize some some things about God and forget that he's close to us. Others underestimate his high status. And that's the case here with the priests in Malachi's time. They took the free grace of God and made it cheap. And because they cheapened grace, they gave cheap offerings. That's why the Lord says in verse 10, that it would be better if the temple doors are shut and the fire of the altar snuffed out. What I find here in Malachi 1 reminds me of Isaiah 1, written centuries prior. The same old problems rise again. And let me read for you Isaiah 1, 10 to 14. Again, follow along or just listen. And hear the Lord's exasperation, similar to the one we hear in Malachi. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am wary of bearing them. Yes, God did just call his own people Sodom and Gomorrah. If that wasn't shocking enough, he had enough of their sacrifices, offerings, incense, festivals, assemblies. It's possible, very possible for a group to gather, be very active, and be very busy with programs, but be in a very bad place spiritually. It might be good to slow down or even shut down for a season recalibrate and reorient themselves around God's holy desires. Thankfully, we don't have to look far and wide to figure out what the Lord wants. Let's come back to Malachi and go down from verse 10 to verse 11. Verse 11 tells us why it'd be better for those poor worshipers to close down and turn off the lights. It tells us one truth in two lines. His name will be great in all the world. Whether it's the land of the rising sun or the sunset boulevard, his fame will be universally proclaimed and known in the future millennial kingdom. 
No longer will Gentiles offer incense in the names of Asherah, Baal, Chemosh, Dagon, Moloch. They will call upon the name of Yahweh. God himself will sanctify his great name, which, was, which has been profaned among the nations, which Israel has profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that he is the Lord. This in-time vision of God's great fame was given to Israel so that they'd stop minimizing God's great name. I also think there's an application for New Testament saints. We too must stop minimizing God's great fame in our gatherings. If we don't make the Lord good, look good, I should say, it might be better if we close down. Now, we know that Christ has built his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I believe that's absolutely true when we're talking about the universal church. But local churches do close, and some should close because they displease God. And I'm not going to cite some statistical data. I'm going to cite Jesus in the book of Revelation. Our Lord himself warned a local congregation using the symbol of a lampstand. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Some might be shocked to find out that this church that Jesus threatened to close down was the church of Ephesus. Yes, the same church that served as Paul's base of operations, received his letter, had equipped elders. It's where Timothy pastored, and according to tradition, John the Apostle ministered. Yet despite all those privileges, they lost their first love. I'm willing to bet that somehow their corporate worship flagged in zeal and passion. So they desperately needed a great vision the great vision of Revelation. They needed something similar to Malachi, a preview of God's great fame to wake them up from their spiritual stupor. Faith Bible Church, if we're not willing to give our best to the Lord, it'd be better if we close down. We must stop minimizing God's great fame. We must get a glimpse of God's future glory and get that motivation to do our best. Now let's go on to the rest of the chapter, chapter 1, and discuss the next emphasis, honoring God's majestic rule. Again, there's much overlap with what's already been said, so I won't spend too much time on the details. Verse 12 connects with the previous verse 11 in this way. The name of the Lord will be great among the nations, but the priests of Israel have profaned that name. What the Lord of hosts said in verse 11 is contradicted by what they say in verse 12. Once again, we're reminded that God's name is profaned when his table is defiled. 
As we see in verse 13, they brought the stolen, the lame, and the sick to the altar. Verse 14 pictures someone like Ananias and Sapphira initially deciding to give an acceptable offering, yet in the end, they bring something blemished. It would have been better if they had never made any vow. And if you're ever tempted to make that same mistake, I encourage you to meditate on 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It tells us that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The third section ends like the way the second one ended, with God giving us the reason he's displeased. See the conjunction 4 in the middle of verse 14, as you saw in the middle of verse 11. And when you see conjunctions like that, you must ask yourself, like that old song, conjunction, junction, what's your function? But both in verse 11 and 14 conclude by telling us why God deserves our best. You also see in both verses reminders that the Lord of hosts is speaking and his name is excellent in all the earth. Now, if the third section differs from the second in any way, I think it's a matter of emphasis. The emphasis here is on God's majestic rule more than his great fame. Of course, they're so closely tied together that it's somewhat artificial for me to treat them separately. But one could say, and I myself say, that God's greatness is the consequence of his majesty. And here the Lord of hosts says, I am a great king. Just as he's the father greater than any earthly father, just as he's the master above any earthly master, he's the great king above every earthly king. As we draw to a close, I want to make a connection between this passage and the gospel. I hope this is a good reminder for the saints and a good presentation for the unsaved. Perhaps you already agree with me that God deserves the highest honor as king. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have not always brought our best things to God. We've given him our leftovers in time, money, and energy. When it comes to service, sometimes we wing it. During service, our minds float somewhere else, even if our bodies are here. We failed first and foremost in the first and great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We constantly fail to honor God's majestic rule. And why is that? Now, left to our devices, we make ourselves kings and rulers in place of the Lord. We love ourselves more than we love God. We despised and profane this name instead of exalting and fearing it. We're more interested in our kingdoms, our reputation, our fame. We're proud idolaters of ourselves. And there's a righteous judgment of God for that. We're sinners 
worthy of death. And not just separation from our physical bodies, but eternal separation from God. Thankfully, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. He has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. For this purpose, God sent his Son, holy God and holy man, to redeem us from our pride and our failure to give the Lord that honor due to him. And amazingly, though Jesus is rightfully the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he came to Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey. The King of the Jews who should have been praised was rejected and mocked. Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And while Israel brought before God the blind, the stolen, the lame, the sick, and the blemished. Jesus sacrificed himself, the lamb without blemish and without spot. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world bore the wrath of God in our place. By his one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. After Christ had by himself purged our sin, after he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he returns, he will not be riding a donkey as a humble king. He'll be on a white horse as faithful and true. And in righteousness, he'll judge and make war. He'll be the Lord of hosts, lead his armies of heaven, and establish his kingdom. So until then, our job is to respond until it's too late, and before it's too late. We must repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Repent as in turn from ourselves and self-righteousness, turn to Christ, and there's nothing we can give And like we sang earlier, no list of works, nothing we can do to please God and to be found acceptable to him. And I hope that you make that choice today to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that often we have distorted view of you. Even though your Bible, your word, clearly reveals who you are, we've ignored the parts that scare us, that's inconvenient to us. Lord, we made an image of you that's not accurate according to your revelation. We ask that you forgive us and help us to see who you are, that you are a holy God, you are the Father, Master, and King of Kings, deserving of much worth.
And you're the same God in the Old and New Testament and in future kingdoms and the current church age. Help us to recognize that. May we not be blind to the truth of your word. May we see you as you are through your word, as your spirit reveals your word to us. We ask that we give you the honor that you deserve, not just things that we have, not just the time we think we own, but our hearts and our bodies and our souls, everything to you. We ask that you be pleased with our humble offering. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.